Well, to well to show you, you can measure it this way. When, when I write a column, just like I wrote one this morning and submitted it, I don't really have to put too much effort in it. I, sometimes I, when I'm sleeping, I get thoughts on my mind, and I wake up three or four o'clock. I'm putting down notes. Mm -hmm. So each year that I submit a column to NNPA, that's the National Newspaper Public Association. I win some kind of an award. See now, you know, I'm 75 years old, and I didn't put any effort in it, and I'm not out out here in the street with the mainstream of the blacks these days, you know, and really what's going on. Now, if I can win an award every year, something is wrong somewhere. I'm talking about either first, second, or third prize. You know, I'm talking about a national competition. And this is from columns from every newspaper. This year I came one second. And at one time, what really shocked me was on, well, I won first prize, best news story. Then, then I won second best news story three or four different times. And if I send that column in, almost every year I won an award. Mr. Rogers, we're talking about first how, how good everything was, I asked you the best of times, you know, and it was when there was people, when the community wasn't, when it was segregation, you said. But there were jobs then. There were jobs. And now, it seems as though probably a lot of good black newspaper men probably are working on other papers. Yeah. And they haven't concentrated themselves into the black newspapers only. Well, no, there's, there's a lot of reason for that, you see. The, uh, well, I mean, that changes the scope of things. It changes the... the um, you mean, what you're trying to say is that they've been indoctrinated into the oh, white world? No, I don't, no, I'm not talking anything wrong. I'm just saying that when you say you submit something in, the the um, the situation has changed so that the a lot of people that would have been concentrated into just black newspapers um, are working for oh, all kinds of. Oh, papers. you mean those who are more qualified? Well, I don't know that they're more qualified. There's just less. I don't know. I'm I'm not. I'm just throwing yeah, it out. I know. To talk I know what it. you mean. Well, you may be right. But I see, don't. I don't know. It's just that things, the, um, we call it the, the amount of people has changed, the, um, it's well, more spread out. People, well, let, let me explain this to you. They uh, may be beating out the, they may, I don't know where they stand when they get, depending on where they went to school or how smart they are. Well, the, the sun is trying to get everybody here. The sun. The new paper. Yeah. Just like. I've been like this for 44 years. If people come in here, if, if, if they learn something, they get a greater opportunity to work somewhere else where they can make more money, have health benefits, insurance, retirement thing. No, I'm not going to try to stop them. I'm going to try to say that that's the greatest reporter in the world if they call me and ask for something, ask for qualification or information about it. Because that's what you need, because I can get some more. We can really get them. But you see, this is what the problem is. Kenneth Cooper, who won the Pulitzer Prize, I think, uh, what, three, four years ago, he worked here. See, Washington University doesn't teach journalism. Their graduates come here to learn. This is the stepping stone. Kenneth Cooper worked here about two years, or maybe two and a half. He left here and he went to the post. He didn't like it there because they wouldn't run the stories the way he wrote them. And he went to the Boston Globe and he won the Pulitzer Prize there. So he's with, with nice writer now, you know. Mm -hmm. But these people appreciate these things. They, we know when they come here, they come here so they can build a resume and get some clippings like that with their name on it to submit to somebody else for another job. So that's the way it's been with me for 44 years. Always, you know, just like uh, 
Virgil Leaf Overby had been with the Christian Science Monitor now since 1970, and I'm happy for him. And Larry Steele worked here with me. He came out of the University of Iowa, and he worked here, I guess, about three or four years long. The rest of them, then he left and went to Jet Magazine, the associate editor. Then he just retired as professor of journalism at Howard University. It's a difficult thing, I guess, to have cohesion and unity, or is it in the black community today, when people are, are trying to move out into other areas and, and other opportunities? Well, you have to, as far as opportunities are concerned, it's just like uh, Jackie Robinson had to be down near a college graduate before he could play baseball when we know that Dizzy Dean never passed anything but the third or fourth grade and he made it in baseball, you know. But what you have to consider is that uh, there were days when I couldn't even go to the ballpark, you know. A lot of ballparks all over the country, Alabama and and um, New Orleans and Arkansas where black people could never even go in to see a ball game. Did people rush to do things that they couldn't do before or were they No, they took scared, the or no. was it uncomfortable it, for them? It it may have been uncomfortable the first five years. You know. It's just like one time the Saint Louis University, I mean Saint Louis Theater, they they uh kind of silently began admitting black people. So what I heard about it, what we did, we went out there and we saw black people way across the street on Grandin Square looking across to see if one, well, if a black couple were going to get admitted. So if they let them in, so they would just string across the street and then jump in line and they would come in, you see. Mm -hmm. They were very cautious about that. Yeah. Yeah, scared. Not, not an easy thing to do. Yeah, it should, should be scared. Let's move to the 60s now. <laughs> well, that's a very, it's a progressive area in a way and pathetic, pathetic in another way where black people, they gained ground but then they lost ground because during the turbulence, 60s, like in Los Angeles, Newark, and Detroit, and places like that, people burned up their own neighborhoods and the places where they were working and stuff like that. And it took them a long time to get together. Matter of fact, Detroit and Newark and places like that haven't survived yet. Then you read in the paper today where they're they're hidden the list of the most segregated cities. So and what you did, you burned yourself out and burned your job out, and you ran the white people out. Talk to me about an Ivory Perry. Great man. Great man. He loved publicity, but he was great. He was doing a good job. And, and I don't know, it, it must have really sneaked up on him about this lead poisoning thing, you know. Because when he got that idea in his head that he was going to stop these people from having that lead-based paint in those buildings, he just became real serious about it, you know. He, he got several landlords uh, convicted and, and, and uh, sent to the workhouse for it. But he was a hard worker. He was a hard worker. I knew him quite well. He was to, he was through here that day he got killed for an interview. That's what he was getting dressed for to come here. And he signed him because I had a copy of the book. There was some question that I wanted to ask him, you know. And we were very good friends for years. Because I've been friends of all the political activists. Percy? Great he was at that party they had for me Saturday before last at the uh, at at uh, the Chancellor's Howard at University of Missouri St. Louis. Percy was there. Um. That's my this is my friend for 41 years here. He was editorial page editor of the Post Dispatch. Who is that? That's James Lawrence. Oh. Yeah. He worked on civil rights just as hard as I did. Yes, yes, you did. Sure. Yeah, those were made two weeks ago yesterday. When That's what they, they honored me and Joe Palmer at the, the Chancellor's home in 
at the University of Arizona St. Louis. Joe Palmer. Yeah. Joe Palmer is the publisher of Proud Magazine. Yeah, that's Joe Palmer. This is Joe Palmer right here. And this is my wife, and this mm -hmm. is, that's Gregory Freeman, and this is uh, Chancellor Barnett. Mm -hmm. uh, um, this, it, Gregory Freeman, you know, he's a, a assistant city editor across this past. One of my best students. He worked here. He came here from, he came here as green as it could be. But everybody that I worked with, I always taught him how to lay out a paper too. And he started laying it out like Chinese. He started to bottom and go up. And I said, man, you can't lay a paper out backwards. Just start at the top and go around. And it took him about a month before he got adjusted to it. It was really funny. Um, well, how about a, a Charles Cohn? Charles Cohn's all right. He's, he, Charlie's all right, you know. He did what he did, but uh, the sacrifice he did to harm his health, I didn't think made any sense. And I do know that the policemen beat him. They broke both of his hands down in that basement. They, they broke, took chairs and beat him. What was your newspaper doing during the 60s? Right in the middle of it. Everywhere they went, I was there. Cameras and all. That's right. When they opened up that wall of respect on Leffingwell and Franklin, I was right there with the camera, talking to Charlie Cohen. When they, when they burned his automobile, I was there. When the policeman told me that he was going to clean them out, I was there. And I knew that the policemen were going to destroy the man's property. I was there because he, he's supposed to have had, well, he told me, he says, we're going over, now this is a, a black lieutenant talking before a, a white captain to me. And this, now this captain, he just fell off his track and killed him and was killed about two or three months ago. So this black lieutenant says, we're going over there on Eastern Avenue and we're going to clean up that whole area. And I said, what are you going to do? Clean the streets? He's going to clean up the whole damn place. So I didn't think the people meant that they're going to firebomb the car and throw up uh, and, and crash into the window of the place. Now, I don't know whether the policeman did that or not, but the very next night after he told me that, that their automobile that they had with the name on it, Black Liberators, was destroyed in a fire and, and, and the place was damaged extensively. And supposedly the police did it. I don't know, but they thought so because they, they threw a firebomb in the police station. That's in Percy's book. Percy, did you? I mean, uh, Ivory's book. Yeah, I read that book. That's a fine book. Yeah, and they also, they also threw a firebomb in this policeman's house on Margaret. Yeah, he had a daughter. Yeah. Well, that thing. Or was that a put up? Huh? Was that a put up? I don't know. Me about his daughter. Mm -hmm. And the flat tires on the car, the station wagon. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that was. That was kind of stupid. Think like that. I'm really sorry I wrote stories like that because, you know, you never always know the details of a family affair, what's going on. But she came out pretty good now, though. She's. Tell me about when Martin Luther King died. I thought I cut that thing off. Martin Luther King. That was really sad. You know, that was a, the, with the material that we compiled, I really worked day and night getting our paper out after he died. That was, that was the first time that we ever had to reprint paper, you know, run them off another press. We started off with 12,000, and the paper sold so fast we had to print another. I got, a, got the copy, you want to see it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that Martin Luther King, he was one of the greatest person I, I ever interviewed. And, and he was really serious about what he was doing, you know. I guess that's why the FBI was on him all the time. Because they didn't like the seriousness of this man. They always thought he was playing around with women. I never did figure it out like that. But uh, he was so, so considerate and he would, 
you know, talk to you, you know, sit down, and you ask, you ask him a question, he come out and tell you, because I asked him just like you asked me, if he didn't fear for his life, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure, he said, that's the price you probably have to pay. We went to Jefferson Hotel at the time, and he let me talk to him for a long time. Tell me about the black community when he died. Really upset. They, I think they burned buildings everywhere but St. Louis. Where? They what? burned buildings everywhere yeah. but St. Louis. You know that what they did in Memphis and in New York and California. Why didn't they burn buildings in St. Louis? Well, I don't know. I really think it's a good thing that they didn't, actually. But uh, St. Louis, Louis is a city that has never been too serious in the struggle for civil rights since about 1958 or something like that. It hasn't been no, serious? No, the, the leadership had changed and by the time Martin Luther King came on the scene. You know, uh, and and if if you had you had a you had well let, let me say this to you, uh, Bill Martin was the assistant U.S. attorney. He's a black. He's the only black assistant U.S. attorney that there was. He called me and he says, he said, Benny, I heard that Percy Green. Johnson, the Carr brothers, and the people been buying a lot of kerosene, and they're gonna, gonna bomb and burn out Wellston. He says, "Now, I'm telling you this, and I know you're a good friend of Percy. Can you talk to him?" He says, "I'm gonna have a couple of Secret Service, uh, what do you call it, Secret Service agents to meet you and FBI. talk to you. Yeah, FBI agent to meet you, and you talk to them." After you talk to Percy, see what you can work out. So I called Percy. Well, I don't know whether Percy was going to do this or not, but there people were saying that they had seen these people with these big cans of gasoline out there in Wellston, and they thought it. Now, whether they had intended to do it or not, it was a good guess on, on Bill Martin's part to call me because I got Percy, and I told him what they knew. And you see, by them, telling me that they knew that Percy was involved and so Johnson, and they called him Judge Johnson, the cowboys, but probably that's frightening them off. So what I so I met the the FBI agents at eighteenth and right on the side of the post office there. They sent the car and talked to me and I told them that Percy said he didn't know anything about it. And he said he said nobody said anything to me about it and if they did, he said that's really stupid. Didn't make any sense. So they were happy to do that, but it didn't burn. It didn't burn. But people in St. Louis, I, I don't know. They haven't. They haven't really been. Uh, they've been leading the fight of civil rights, but they never did in a violent manner, you know, at any time. Well, I'm, I'm asking, why do you think they didn't? It, it could be now because the people in the civil rights movement in St. Louis are more more educated to a certain degree, and they have more pride in their community because, you know, I don't know how the people in Detroit and Newark, I don't know whether they own their property or not, but I know in uh, in, in St. Louis it's a different thing. Most, most blacks at that time in the areas where there were problems, owned the property around there because I can recall a situation in 2200 block of 2200 block of Bill Street when uh, Monsignor Shockley was out there in the street when uh, and a whole bank bang of gang of thugs came around and they were going to attack him down there because this was white. This is the same week the week Martin Luther King was killed. Now Charles Wren, who was a sergeant or no telling what it was at the time, he and another policeman was sitting in the car, but they didn't have to come over there to take those thugs off of Monsignor Shockley because them old black folks started pulling out them knives and said, if you touch him, you're dead. And this is a fact. I'm standing right there. And, and I got a thrill out of writing it. And then Wren came over and then he dispersed the crowd and all that and everybody went on about their business. 
But this is the way things really happen in St. Louis. It's just like before the 60s, you know, word got out when they opened up the fairgrounds park mm -hmm. for black people to swim. Right. So, some people said it was going to be a riot. They called me and, and uh, somebody called the police department. So what they did, they sent Lieutenant Brooks out there and just five black police officers. And when they got there, they saw a Globe Democrat photographer up in a tree. They were ready for a whole lot of excitement. They were looking for it. But it didn't happen. Those, police, those six black police officers, they straightened out the whole mess and there was no riot. See? The only, the closest thing they ever had to a riot in St. Louis was at Leffenwell and Sheridan when the Petty Brothers got into a fight with some policemen over some alleged assault of their mother during the disturbance, and they turned over some police cars, and they, beat, they had a hell of a fight there. That's about all they've had in St. Louis. That's, that's about it. And at that time, the reason they had the disturbance was because there was a fellow named Clyde X who was head of the Muslims. He stood on the hood of his Chrysler on the corner, and he said, kill him, kill him, and they're fighting like fools out there in the street. It was just like in all situations, the policemen won. <laughs> Jefferson Bank demonstration. Uh-huh. What was that? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it was time for that. Really? It was time for that. Yeah, you had, you had Jefferson Bank. The only black employee was the man out there on the lot showing you how to park your car and stuff like that. After all, if you're intelligent enough to have enough money to be saving in that bank, you should be intelligent enough to be working in the bank. Now, it, it's been said in, in the reading that I've done that, that the white press didn't cover any of the blacks, uh, Negro sit-ins or uh, any of their demonstrations until Jefferson Bank came along. Is, is that how you see it? They had demonstrations in 48 at the downtown department stores and the, and the lunch counters and like that. But but the, the white they, press didn't cover no. it. No, I know that they had demonstrations and yeah. protests and things like that and sit-ins, but but I, I never saw any proof that the white press covered it until Jefferson Bank. And I'm asking, is that the way you see it? Well, I guess it would be like and the other thing you'd see, all I could see is what I had in the St. Louis American, but I could see very little in the Post Globe mm -hmm. Star and Times. Mm -hmm. you know, Star Times, that was on the scene at that time too. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, it seemed to me in the beginning, like in the 40s and the early 50s, that all, the, all of the white people were trying to stay out of it, just like I'm telling you in 1950 when I wrote the story about drugs in the schools, the Times will only interest that one time until they find out it was a black problem. But they don't realize that this black problem can peel off and become a white problem, too. See. Well, I suppose uh, the sit-ins and the demonstrations before the Jefferson Bank weren't really touching anybody. They were just out there doing it, and it was, but that's, this was... That's correct. That's correct. Mm -hmm. and, and the darnest thing about it, the spokesman for Jefferson Bank every time I was there was the same man that the county had as chairman of this freeholders thing. You know this lawyer, what is his name? He was, he, yeah, but he was the same one. He's down in the bank. He was pointing to Sheriff Toza and having Toza to lock up so and so and all that sort of stuff. And it, it, they had some stool pigeons too, you know. They they had some, some black stool pigeons who were picking out different people who were protesting, telling the sheriff about it. And then several of these people had a little, some trumped up charges placed on them too by this. And it's another thing about the churches. I know several preachers who crossed the picket lines almost every day. I know several of them. Why did they do that? I don't know, and I know, and I know an undertaker who did his business on a telephone with them, which is same as doing business with South Africa on telephone, but he still was cooperating with the bank, you see. 
Well, there were many things going on in the 60s. Yeah, still we're holding Brotherhood Week here too, aren't we? They don't have Brotherhood Week anymore, do they? I don't know, do they? I don't know, I guess uh, I've been so wrapped up in Black History Month and things like that, but I haven't heard of it. But I know they were holding, uh, having Brotherhood Week at uh, the Jewish Center on, on Union and Enright for a long time. But they finally quit having them, to my knowledge. I know I haven't seen it in the literature. The Metropolitan Church Federation, though, used, it, it, it was a, used to be a big thing. Now, it prevented a lot of violence, too, you know. You know about that? Metropolitan Church Federation? All of the churches together? Yeah. All of the churches had represented in that. Mm -hmm. And this played a big Black and white. Yeah, black and white. Sure. This was from, oh, I What well, was the Rabbi Easterman involved in that? Right, that's mm -hmm. right. Right. Well, you had the Catholics and the Baptists and the Methodists, and the, the Jewish people, and all of them. I've spent. I used to be in them for. I could start on a Friday. I'd be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, attending those sessions. It was a good thing. But you have, you have a, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of organizations, who silently joined and prevented violence in the cities in St. Louis. And one thing is like I'm telling you those old people down there who threatened to cut the neck off those thugs with bothering Monsignor shopping because I don't know anybody in St. Louis who's been in the middle of the civil rights thing more than Monsignor shopping. He'd been right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it all the time. I have a picture in my drawer somewhere around there before the 60s where he was out in the schoolyard at the church down there in St. Bridget's talking to some school kids, you know, whole group of them, and they listened to him. You know, the, you know the problem now is the kids don't have anybody to listen to. You don't, you don't have anybody who, who's trying to reach out there and grab you and say, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. You know, they, they need more of those people. Why don't they have somebody? I don't know. I, I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe you can tell me. I know. We've got this preacher over in East St. Louis who's claiming he's saving the kids' soul, but the court said he's selling them drugs. Is that a big help? <laughs> yeah, you need more of them. We've had some good ministers in St. Louis lately. We had a, a Bishop Fisher over here at the Metropolitan Zion Church. Anytime you build housing projects for the, you know, complexes for the people, mm -hmm. the elderly people, and for middle and low income people, you're doing a good job. He did that. And J. Haskell Mayo did it at St. James Church. It, that shows that they're doing something else but trying just to save their souls in these shopping sessions in the churches. Has this paper done what you hoped it would do? Well, it, it can't because of financial situations. See, I, I'd like to have, I would, I like all types of news, regardless mm -hmm. of what I think about it or what anybody thinks about it. I think that to be a good newspaper, you've got to have it all. Regardless of whether what we think about crime or not, I think that we should have a capsule accounts of about one fourth page of criminal thing. And I think we should have since, since so many of these people think that they're going to be millionaires playing basketball and football, mm -hmm. we should have more of that because those youth are really involved in something worthwhile out there. Yeah, one thing about them, they're off the street, and I don't think they're selling drugs. You know, it takes kids in the athletic programs. You got Matthew Dickey Boys Club, mm -hmm. and you have uh, Herbert Hoover Boys Club. So, what what I would what I would like to do is have something uh, semi-monthly about these group, what these kids are doing. The good things. Good thing, you know, positive things, mm -hmm. you know. Then we can then we can talk about these 
things where they all get dressed up and put their neckties on this sort of crap here, you know, and have these social gatherings. That's all right with me too, but I don't want to go too far with it because there's too much poverty in the world for me to be exporting my beautiful silk coat, you know, and sport coat and things like that. Mm -hmm. Because I have a deep feeling inside, a little hurt about those who are homeless today. Because three months from now, they're going to be cold out there. So what, this is another thing real quick, what, what the newspaper going to have to do, going to have to compile more news about the homeless and why are they homeless. How have you differed from the artists? <laughs> Let me tell you, like Jesse Jackson says, fundamentally more educated. <laughs> okay. Does that sound that? Yeah, that's fine. I understand. Tell me about Mr. Sweets. Mr. Sweets? Well, if he, if he had not been a great person, I wouldn't have worked with him all those years. Matter of fact, I worked with him up until the time he died, you know. Because, see, we ran more business than just the newspaper. And um, he's a great person. He would always, he, he would get angry if he found out that I owed a bill and was struggling to pay for it because I was handling his money. And he said, don't ever do that. Take my money. It's your money, and like that. And uh, before I started working with him on a newspaper, you know, I, I had a lot of beautiful weekends going to football games all over the country, you know, Michigan and Indiana, Illinois, and all that place like that. He loved football. Mm -hmm. He used to play football, you know, and he loved football. He was always at baseball games. And it was a, he was really a family man, you know. He was a family. Everything was for his family. And I don't know, he... To me, he was really about the greatest that I have ever worked because I've never worked with anybody else, you know, basically. No more than the early part of my life when I worked with another entrepreneur named Jesse Johnson. She said that whenever you get an award or whenever you given something or recognized that you always go back and you can share that credit with, yeah, I do. with him. I do. Always. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She spoke I, so highly of you. Well, I, I say this about it. Well, you, 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 take a, you take a situation like that. If it were not for Mr. Sweets, I wouldn't have gotten any award because I wouldn't be with the newspaper. How did you all uh, differ? We differ. Mm -hmm. I oh. mean, and when when a, when a situation would arise. Um, oh, we differ. We differ politically yeah. a lot of times, mm -hmm. and uh, mostly we differ on politics, because you see, Mr. Sweets had and police department too. Mr. Sweets was a he was a member of the Police Retirement and Relief Board for about 20 years, I guess. Then I'm writing stories about police abuse, Brutality. which, which involved some of his friends. Mm -hmm. But you see, if I, whenever I write a story, it's not going to be one-sided. I'm going to write about what the so-called victim said and what the policeman said, and I have this story. And then my problem with then Mr. Sweets on the political side, he would always come up with some white politicians sometimes, not most times that I felt weren't as qualified as the black individual who's running for an office. And then I'm writing stories about this black person that come out on the front page about what this person had done and everything. And then in that same week, if he supposed I've had a story about his white friend and it wasn't there, he would take a vacation and be gone for three or four days <laughs> so he wouldn't have to answer the phone. So he would let you go your way? Free to do it. Hmm? Free to do it. Free to do the only it. time, the only time that that a that a story wasn't in the St. Louis American the way I wanted it was six months after Mr. Sweet sold the paper. This was in this was in June 1981. I had I wrote I did a lot of leg work. You see, Roscoe McCreary had had a 
It was really the place downtown of 9th and Pine. It had barbecue in there, and he wanted to, um, he knew that he wasn't going to make it just on barbecue. He wanted to put liquor in there, too. It was in a hotel. So the excise commissioner refused to give him a license for it, you see. And I talked to everybody in the area like that, and I knew there was discrimination there. And I, and I wrote my story, and I had the pictures of where someone had stolen meat out of the cooler and all of this, and I had it on the front page. And so the fellow who had bought the paper saw this on the front page and he said, I'm not going to have this in my paper because I don't like the man. Well, you see, when you start injecting personal feelings into a story in a newspaper, then, then you're really lost as a publisher completely. You see, you, you, you can't inject your feelings in anything. If you're a newspaper publisher or editor, you just have to write it mm -hmm. so it can be a perfect story. And, and then he said, well, you can put it back in the back somewhere. So I put the story back, way back. But the story would have been a prize, but the man had lost $40,000, you know, trying to get the place back there, stolen his meat. Then one month, the story was, one month after they rejected him, the man who owned the hotel got licensed for the same place. See, and he's white. So that's discrimination, right? Shows you right there. So I, I wrote the story the way I saw it. But that's the first and only time that I had a story that they didn't get in the paper where I wanted. You know. But it really didn't bother me too much then because uh, yeah, there are many people in the newspaper business who are disturbed, you know. Uh, they, can't, they can't take the strain. It's, it's, a, str it's a strenuous job. Because, see, I've, I've had a lot of headaches because I don't bother about it now. Just the rest of these people, the city editor and all them, worry about their stories and the headlines. Mm -hmm. But I've had a, many a sleepless night trying to think what I'm going to have on the front page. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the, when tomorrow morning game? Boy, that's tough. That's tough, too. Um, could you always interview whites? Uh, could they always give you a uh, an interview if you wanted one? I never had any problems. Well, I've never really had any problems. You can always see the hair if you want to. Oh, sure. Cervantes, I just ran a picture of me and Cervantes about two months ago in the paper. So Who do you think has been the best mayor for St. Louis? Blacks. What? For blacks. Who do you think has been the best mayor for blacks in St. Louis? Mm. Gosh, that's a tough one. I'd have to say it was on uh, Bernard Dickman. It helped to be Bernard Dickman. He was a true friend of the black community. I don't know whether he was forced to be because of Jordan Chamber, but he was a true friend. But, but I'm telling you this, but still in all, the progress that were made were when other people were mayor. You know, like when 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 Dickman was mayor, I think that they only had 32 black policemen out of 2,300. Population of the city was 831,000. You had uh, there was nobody working in city hall, no more than clerk, you know, clerks, a few clerks and things like that. And there's no black ambulance drivers. You didn't get black the first black ambulance driver started in the 50s. Sonny Hawkins was the first black ambulance driver, you know. And then the highest ranking policeman at that time, well, well, when Dickman came on, Lieutenant Ira Cooper may have been still living, but then after Lieutenant Ira Cooper died, the highest ranking was sergeants. Then you didn't get any further than that till in the 60s when they got their first uh, black lieutenant. You know, no, and there was no black, because he had no control over this, but there were no blacks on the board of police commissioners until 1967. 
So it, it's hard to say. It's because there are so many extenuating circumstances. Yeah, it's it's really hard to say. What about the closing of Homer G. Phillips Hospital? It was a drastic step. It was a drastic step because the hospital was something that black people had to be proud of because just like we talk about the blacks who trained here in journalism, that was the training place for some of the greatest black surgeons and physicians in the, city, in the United States. They came from all over the world, in South Africa and Jamaica, Haiti, New York, California, everywhere to intern at Homer G. Phelps Hospital. Why did that have to happen? Why did it have to happen? The average person don't know it the way that it was told to me. Now, I was told by the former police commissioner, Winter Smith, that he had a seven-page report to show that the reason that the mayor closed the hospital and kept it a secret was because millions of dollars worth of drugs were being stolen over there. And they couldn't afford it, and they didn't want to expose those who were stealing it. Now this is what Bob Rennersmith showed me in a report. And as of now, only about three people know that. <laughs> <laughs> either, we either erase it or a lot more people are going to know it. I wouldn't care. Now this is what he told me. I gave it the name of the person who told me. And that's what he said. He said it was, he said he was having financial problems because of that. And the drugs were being stolen and they were being sold. That's what the man told me. And well, if you printed it, and he, he, he didn't know where wrote him to forget it. But they told me three or four times. I, I think I wrote about it one time in my column. Did you get any feedback? No, I don't get any feedback. I don't. I only got, only time I ever received any feedback, anything I wrote was some people trying to defend Roy Ennis in court for things I say about him, and I just, I think Roy Ennis is off as a blocker. Roy Ennis, he spoiled my image of him when he had a press conference down at the Holiday Inn, and he had all of the press there. And one thing about me is, I don't care what I do, I'm not looking for recognition. And when they start the press conference off, his secretary, she points to me first at everything so I can ask them a question. And ignoring the whites who had had their hands up a long time. And, and the most hurting part about this interview was that he was saying, he announced at that time, and from that day on, whites could not be bona fide members of CORE. He said they can be contributing members, but they can't be bona fide members. And then that hurt me because I'm one of those who were there for years with, with Marvin Rich and Dick Cabner, who were Jewish, and uh, Harold Gibbons, who was white, and, Mar and Marvin Green, uh, Rosalind Greenbaum, who was Jewish, and, and um, well, Ernest Calloway, how hard, and Ernest Calloway would have died if he had been at that meeting when he announced that. You know, there's so many white people contributed to court. Charles Oldham. Charles Oldham, that's right. I'm not going to, I'd have to think about Charles Oldham. But I, I knew him, you know, from way back. They were having meetings down on Garrison and Franklin on Monday nights. I would be there. But they would all be there. Harold Gibbons would, and he'd never make, you know, but, and then, then here you can hear this man comes up here saying, no more Charles Olson, you know, the first and only white to have been a national chairman of court, you know. So then that means from that day on there'd be no more such as that. That must have hurt those I don't think they, none of them were at the meeting. I didn't see any of those. They must have known what was going to happen. And then they kept on, you know, it's just, this is a segregation in itself when you point to me, I'm the only black reporter in there. I guess, you know, I was really an activist like the rest of them. 
I don't think they even invited the other newspapers because they never did write anything anyway about things like that. If they did, it was very little of and I was deeply involved, but they kept pointing to me, do you have something to say? You know, frustrating. Did you say anything? Asked more questions. I asked why. And they said, well, just a new day, you know. Just a new day. That's, that's my policy. And then they went on talking about something else. I don't know what they were going to do. But that killed them. Yeah, you talk, talking about them. How about Roger Baldwin? He was one of the organizers with James Marlowe, Roger Baldwin, the white, old white man. He was old then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Roger Baldwin, I think he started the Civil Liberties Organization. Um, what was the, the, the highlight of, of the civil rights movement in St. Louis. What was the... The highlights of it. Well, the high point. You said before you thought when the schools were... Yeah. Uh, you know, your job was going to be over. You might be looking for one. But but what... What was when you maybe really thought you had it made? Or can you... Can you point and, uh, to a time when there was jubilation well, in this office? There well, was, you, know, where there you, was can, you can you can think of a whole lot of things. You can think of uh, you can think of Jackie Robinson with Brooklyn Dodgers. You can think of Tom Austin, the first black that played with the Cardinals, or something like that. But then you can think back at the days when. Black women weren't even considered as ladies and they wouldn't even let them in the park on Ladies Day. So you see with all this frustration, one ups, offset the other. I don't know. Uh, every, the, basically the smart black people thought as I did it was just time for it, you know. After school desegregation, which came later than integration of the baseball teams, you know. Uh, but uh, one thing about it is, integration is a good thing, but uh, the business community came out losing. Mm. You know, just like all black people, no matter where they were in St. Louis, for a good meal you had to go downtown to Jefferson and Chapter Street Deluxe Restaurant to, to eat. But then when you say that uh, Garavelli is and people who had been poking sandwiches to you through the side window, wouldn't let you come in and sit down. When they start saying that, and then in this Chinese restaurant on Grand and Franklin, who would never let you eat in there, but you had to take your food out. When they get to the point where they sit in, then, well, now y'all now can just come on in now and just sit down and spend your money. Mm -hmm. So then what happened to the black community is that, and it's, it's, it's really true right now, they, the, the black people, just like a man told me here yesterday, he said, said over on uh, Martin Luther King, the fellow who owned the hurricane, well, he had big business because owned what? He owned the, the hurricane lounge, you oh, know. Okay. okay. He said, well, they come in, he got big business because they come in there and he cashed a check and they they buy one drink. And I said, what do they do out there? Well, they go on downtown and spend their money with the white folks. See, then you, you have problems now. You you take a, you got the regal sports, you got fine clubs out on, uh, out on Florida, you got some downtown on Ninth and Washington on by black people, but out the, the uh, Brio's had so much black trade out there, the man managed to sell it to somebody else It was so proud. Then they had Glancer out in Maryland Heights, Brio's on, page way out there on the other side of 270. Then they had another club out there called Glances on 270 and, uh, and Dorset Road. They had, they, when you go in that place sometimes, you'd think it was a, a black place, you know. It finally closed. They couldn't cope with it. But this is the way it is. Just like I'm telling you about Duke Younger, where I saw him sipping his last scotch of water. <laughs> Didn't need to come to the 
did you know didn't have to come to the uh Lambs Club anymore, yeah. anything like that. You know, this is all gone, oh, man. No, we don't. We, we can join the white folks at the chase. Um, how do you feel, and how did you feel then when Negro changed to black, and now it's changing to Afro American or African American? Well, this is what I think about it. And did the paper change as it changed? Once in a while. We, we use it, it's about half and half. But, but my, my point here is, if you, if you, if you want to refer to me by race, I like to be capitalized. So if you call me an African-American or American-African, you're going to have to capitalize that. I like to be capitalized, because anything lowercase it, it seems to me that makes me be a lot. Uh, makes it seem that I've lost a lot of dignity or something. This is why uh, Lester A. Walton, the first black to write a newspaper in St. Louis, when he, the first thing he did when he got to work in that newspaper in New York was start raising hell with the press for them to change Negro to a capital N. He was successful in that. You know, he just used a lowercase N until Lester Walton did that. Did you like the change from Negro to Black? No, I didn't like it. I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't like the term Black because it's just like I told some people then, I said, when I was a kid, a, a white boy and I had a fight at the corner of LaSalle in Ohio for three nights after school. We met there and we fought for three nights because he called me a Black boy, you know. You know, I'm leaving the Luger school and he had just come home from his white school and we just signed and he said, hey, black boy, and all, you know, that was those were fighting words, you know, back then. So here I am, gotten too old to do anything, make, makes it, now they're calling makes it black. correct to call me black. <laughs> oh, God. It's awfully confusing, isn't it, Mr. Yeah, Rogers? it was confusing. It was confusing. What kind of little boy were you? I was very studious. When it rained, I mean, when it snowed or something, so on, I couldn't go to school. I cried all day. <laughs> I loved to go to school, but I, I, when I, you see, when I, the first day I went to Bashan school, they beat me in initiation, you know. Mm. So that, so I was a fighter from then on. You know? No knives or nothing like no, that. Just, just your fists. It's not like nowadays where they shoot you in the head. Cause I didn't live up and live in those days. It was different, you see. Uh, well, I think that happens in, when boys go into new schools. My son, that happened. He was so scared to go into a bigger school because he heard they put them in the lockers. I never, I really never had a chance to, to fight or anything because I started working when I was five years old. I was very little boy when, when my brother took me over to the Argus. I started selling in St. Louis Argus, and I've been working 70 years. I haven't had a vacation here since 1981. I just, you know, work like that. Are you a workaholic? I think so. I just love to work. Uh, work is good for you. Tell me about your mom and dad, your mother and father. My mother and father? Well, I, I, I can explain my mother like those people, I, like those people talk about their wives and children on uh, this wheel of fortune, mm -hmm. the sweetest person in the world. Mm -hmm. My my mother was, she was most a Cherokee Indian. Her hair was hanging way down below her waist, and she was so proud. You know, she's I don't know. She had twelve children, twelve children. My father was a butcher. He always worked. He, he retired after working 40-some years at Cryopatrick Company as a butcher. So in that way, we never had any problem worrying about poverty or anything like that, except one time. One time my mother was in the, in the hospital, and my father was critically injured at the Cryopatrick Company. And so my brother was in college, and I, there's no way to pull him out. He's in his last year getting ready to graduate up there. 
Illinois Wesleyan. And it happened at a time where I had worked for John B. Hill Construction Company as a water boy on Halls Ferry Road and Broadway when they built the building. And so they were building the Sean High School at the time. And he was construction, he, he was building that too. And so my father wasn't working, my mother's in the hospital. I went over to that office and I said, I got to, I got to get me a job here. He fired two white men and hired me as a water boy. And that's how we survived. That's a fact. At Bashan High School when they built it. Why did he do that? I don't know. Well, he, he probably figured I was faster than them because I was a hell of a water boy when I was working over at that place on Broadway and Hallsbury uh, Road. So you, uh, he, he was dissatisfied with them anyway, you know. You were the mainstay. You helped. Well, I, I always mixed my water pretty good. I take some, you know, you, you, you wasn't, I, what, I'm making about three dollars and, what, I make about three dollars an hour or something like that. No, three dollars, almost three dollars a day, baby. Whatever I was making, I was buying lemons and cutting it up in the water, you know, so these people could survive. And then, putting it on ice. The rest of them, the, the two men they had probably were too cheap. They weren't doing it that way. So they knew these carpenters and people knew me from another place. That's how they got me the job, you know. And you took the money home. Took the money home. Yeah. Where were you in the family? Were you one of the oldest or one of the oldest? Oh yeah, I'm second oldest because the second oldest died when he was young. He fell out of the high chair and died. But I was the second oldest out of 12. And you see, when I was coming up, I came up really the hard way. People talk about the depression and back there. When I was a kid, before my father got into the pack house and became a butcher, uh, my father owned horses and wagons, you know. Mm -hmm. And we distributed ice and coal. We did sold ice in the summertime and cold in the wintertime and I could I could carry a 75 pound cake of ice up on the third floor you know and like that but all of that was good for me it keeps me kept, kept me working you know my brother got rich doing it my brother bought him a black horse and a wagon and he was about as cheap as hell and <laughs> and and with this horse and wagon he raised enough money to go to college. He's the first black that went to Illinois Western, Illinois Western and graduated back then in those days, you know, in the 30s and like that. Well, he got in there in 1928. And uh, he was working and saving that money. He, you know, I was, and, uh, I was I'm making 75 cents a day, you know. So that, what I was making it up there to, I'm making 40 cents an hour at Bashan High School when it is. 40 cents an hour. $3.20 a day. $3.20, well, that's right. Eight hours, $3.20 a day. But I kept the family together and it was nice, you know. But all my sisters, all of them, they appreciate that too, you know. They had a they honored me on my 40th anniversary here at the St. Louis American, down at the Salad Bowl, and my sisters had a plaque made, you know. Mm -hmm. And and that's sometimes as as great as the awards you get from the Journal Society, you know, and you're the, the greatest person, a brother, greatest brother a person can have, and like that. You feel pretty good. So it's real nice. Yeah. Is there anything you want to ask me? I've asked you questions. No, I don't. <laughs> I, I, only time I ask questions on an assignment. You know, um, I'm teasing I, you. I feel like I've just, I've just kept you. A lot of people, a lot of people ask me about the greatest assignments that I've ever had and the greatest recognition, the best recognition I've ever had, mm -hmm. honestly to my opinion was, out of all the reporters in the St. Louis area, the Democratic Party selected me to interview Sergeant Shriver when he was here 
Randy for Vice President. You know, he he appeared down in Florissant somewhere. They sent Secret Service agents in the neighborhood to find out about him and all that. And they talk about feeling real tall. They arranged for the Secret Service agents to pick me up in the limousine, see. And then they picked up Sergeant Shriver. And when he was getting in the car, the Lieutenant Colonel of St. Louis Police Department, uh, Tom Moran, came and opened the door. You know, I, I feel real good. I said, hell, this, this guy seeing me getting in here with this you know, this top Democrat and all that. And what they did, they drove me all the way to the airport. And we went way down in the Lindbergh side, went in the building. And he and he talked with me about two hours. Did he really? Yeah, yeah. He was calling Richard Nixon and all his gang blood suckers and all that. And I wrote a hell of a story. I wrote a hell of a story. And I really enjoyed that. And another, well, I enjoyed my assignments talking to him. Uh, Martin Luther King, and, and the, the best, I think I interviewed Michael Jackson a lot more than anybody, got mm -hmm. more out of I got more out of him than anybody, because it was the Jackson Five, you see. Mm -hmm. And they were appearing at, at the Kilar time, but they were standing at the roadway end. Mm -hmm. Somehow, well, I have friends in California, you know, that who handled the thing for Motown at the time, and they arranged for him to set up the interview with me. So I had all of them in this bedroom, and I took my three sons down there, you know, I had pictures all together. And I'm asking Michael questions about what do you do about education? When do you go to school? When do you learn this and that? And he's telling me, he says, uh, there's nothing we have to learn. Uh, not me, I don't have to learn anything. I, 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 I know I, I can sing and I can dance and I'm going to improve myself. I don't need any teacher. This is what he told me. <laughs> and then I got kind of curious about Jackson because Michael, because he kept holding my hand, and, and Jim Joyner says, he's not going to run off anywhere, turn him loose, you know. And we, we had, that was a long interview. We stayed there a long time up there. And then they, they, posed, with my, they posed with my twins on a picture, and then they had other pictures made of them sitting on the bed and all that. But that was real nice, especially that even at that time, they were millionaires, you know, all of them. One of the kids was talking about, in his spare time, how he would would polish his Rolls Royce and ride it around the block and all this silly stuff. Who are the young children's heroes today? Young children's heroes. Gosh, they have some silly ones, you know. They you come up here with all this crap about Mr. T and stuff like that. And, uh, you, once a time they would grab a, a baseball player or something like that. I don't think they have them anymore. I really don't know of any. You can't say Bill Cosby because it's the white adults who are like him. It's really not the children, especially the blacks. Do the black adults like him? I, yeah, I'm sure they do. They like him. Yeah. At least I like him. I didn't look at him last night because I think it's going to be a repeat. I looked at a man called Hawk. Well, he's certainly given a tremendous amount of money, hasn't he? Just like a, the fellow said that he was asking for a contribution to, a, what's that school down there in Georgia? The Fisk University was having the problems. And he started going to give him about $10,000 to give him a million three hundred thousand dollars But he gave more than that to some college, to another college, yeah. Morehouse. No, Fisk well, University was the girls' school. I, I don't know. He gave a tremendous amount to one particular school. And Quite a million. And a, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Million, but he really... Um, so he got to admire somebody like that. Uh, I think I just have one more question okay. to ask you, and then you can tell me what maybe we've left out. Um, how did the white newspapers treat you, treat the St. Louis American? Oh, we've had great association. Just back when my friend here was an editorial page editor of the Post, they were always reprinting our editorials. And In the 40s also? Oh, sure. Always. In the 40s. And then, 
And in the fifth, in the fifties, we had the Mound City Press Club, and I was the president most times. And we had two white members, Jim Lawrence and uh, Rufus Terrell. He was from Mississippi, you know. Now, why did you have? <laughs> 